You're back with The Takeaway. And this is the moment that made me cool with my 21-year-old daughter. Hi, Melissa Harris-Perry. How are you doing? You see, my kiddo is obsessed with reruns of The Office. And that greeting to me is from one of her all-time favorite actors. Hi, my name is Rain Wilson. Emmy nominated for his role as Dwight in the U.S. version of The Office, Wilson is also a producer, podcaster, and has an upcoming Peacock series titled Rain Wilson and the Geography of Bliss. We talked a little bit about his new book, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution, and what brought him to this path of spiritual exploration. Well, you know, a lot of people are responding to this book saying, why the hell is the guy who played Dwight on The Office writing a book about spirituality? But, and there's a number of reasons. It's um, a series of topics that I have been fascinated by for my whole life. Um, I'm the kind of guy who would go into a party and talk to people and say, hey, what do you think happens after we die? And kind of clear the room immediately. (laughs) Um, But also, um, I went through some really hard times in my 20s. You know, I um, what I realize now, this was during the 90s, it was a kind of a mental health crisis, which kind of forced me to reevaluate my take on spirituality, on, on God, on faith, and look for spiritual solutions to some issues that were, you know, frankly, making me uh, miserable and not want to live my life. Spiritual solutions, but weren't you in Hollywood? Couldn't you have just done drugs? Well, that's one solution. That's a solution I tried for a couple of years. That didn't work out so well. That solution, the alcohol solution I tried, that didn't work. Um, the porn solution, the mindless distraction solution, the seeking fame solution, none of those things kind of quieted that dis-ease, the unease, the discontent that we all have inside of us. The Buddha's central teaching is that life is suffering and that the word from the Sanskrit is is dukkha, which means kind of dissatisfaction, like chronic dissatisfaction. Life is chronic dissatisfaction and we learn how to deal with it and we learn how to cope. Um, Oftentimes we just distract ourselves, don't think about it, stay busy. But in my case, I really wanted to dig a little deeper. And yet it's not a text that is missionary in its impulse. You're not, you're not here to convert the reader. I am. I want to convert the reader to the idea that spirituality is important. It's vital. It's part of the human experience. And culturally, we're eschewing it, and we need to dig in. So that's my only agenda. <laughs> All right, I want to I want you to dig in with us on what it means to to dig in because I um like as you're as you're talking about sort of all the things you tried that and I think you're clearly not alone, right? All of us tried the distractions, the pushing it down, the pushing it away and I'm like I'm hearing um Solange seat at the table playing in my head right now as you're saying that. So talk to me about when you decide to stop and go in instead of pushing it away. One of my favorite quotes from the great Buddhist monk and social justice fighter extraordinary, 
um, Thich Nhat Hanh, philosopher, meditator, spiritual guide, is the only way out is in. So a meditation practice has helped me. One of the things I talk about in the book and I dig into, I dig into God, I call God the notorious G-O-D um, <laughs> and have a whole chapter exploring this kind of idea for God in the modern world. So for me, I can join my meditation practice with a prayer practice because I believe that prayer is speaking to the universe pleading, beseeching, asking, yearning, communicating. And the act of meditation is being receptive. It's, it's listening, it's taking in, it's digesting, it's, it's staying open and sensitive to what the universe is telling you. And by universe, that's just the best word I can find. It's multiverse, it's creation, it's the creative spark that courses through every molecule and all matter and dark matter in this universe and infinite other universes. So that's what I talk about when I say the universe. So I think that a great deal can be discovered by going in. And, you know, I hope we can get to this in the interview, but then you do that so that you can take it out. So I want to go in one more step before we start taking it out. And I'm I'm interested in, you know, you've you've as we're talking, you're giving me the quotations from Buddhist thinkers. Um I know that you are bringing multiple sort of theological traditions. Can you talk about that a bit? So I was raised a member of the Baha'i faith, and for those who don't know, um the Baha'i faith accepts the fundamental divinity and holiness and sacredness of all the world's spiritual traditions. There's more to it than that, but that's an essential building block of what being a Baha'i means. So growing up a Baha'i, we were reading Buddhist texts. We were reading the Bhagavad Gita. We were having uh, Sufi thinkers and, and sick people uh, over at our house and talking to them about their beliefs. So to me, it's really important to dig into the rich wisdom tradition of all of the world's faiths to help inspire us, to guide us. And in this time of great pain and uncertainty and chaos, in this time of the mental health crisis, the likes of which we've never seen before in young people, in this time of, of climate change and the threat of war and the reality of war, this panoply of spiritual beliefs is there for us to dive into and to draw from. And there's Star Trek. And there's Star Trek. Which I have to say, I am like such an over-the-top Trekkie that my husband won't really talk to me about it anymore. My my team here on The Takeaway is regularly like, oh, is this happening again? But I love that, you know, at the start, you're giving us this sense that actually Kung Fu and Star Trek were for you both spaces of spiritual journey. Yeah, exactly. So I reference in the book two of my favorite TV shows from the 70s, because for me, I'm kind of a pop culture junkie as well as a mysticism and world religion junkie. So Kung Fu is a beautiful television show from the 70s about a, 
about a monk, a Shaolin monk walking the old West and dealing with all these racist, angry cowboys. And that I liken to the internal spiritual journey. That's similar to the journey we were just talking about. Star Trek to me is a different kind of spiritual journey and one that we're not in conversation with very much, but is crucially important. And that is humanity's inevitable spiritual maturation. In the time of the Federation, humanity has gone through a great war and incredible destruction. And out of the ashes of that has healed itself. It has solved racism. Remember the first interracial kiss mm -hmm. in television history was on Star Trek. It has healed sexism. It has healed poverty and income inequality. Through the miracle of technology, yes, which is kind of Roddenberry's main thrust, but you really see this mature human species, occupants of a planet, living in harmony with nature and with science, and then being able to go out into the galaxy and seek out strange new life and new civilizations. I have also really loved the newer versions that have emerged, I think for me ah. in particular as a black woman, Star Trek Discovery. So I'm also from the 70s. So I, you know, I fell in love first with Kirk's uh, Enterprise. Um, yep. But I've, I've also loved watching how, you know, as you point out, like on the one hand, having healed these things, but also having the residuals. And so the social justice mission continues in this question of what does it mean to be Starfleet, to be encountering not as war, but as um, as discoverers. And um, I do think it it leads us to asking really big questions about, again, your point, once we've healed internally, what is the goal externally? Yeah, and there are spiritual tools that we can put to use to build community and to build bridges and to heal us as a species on this planet. One of the things I pull up is radical compassion. And I use that as a tool. And that is in every faith tradition, right? A, a, an idea of a compassion that is beyond, beyond, beyond. You look at Jesus's compassion for the other, that he would heal a Samaritan. You know, back in those days, the Jews didn't even talk to the Samaritans. Um, that he would wash the feet of prostitutes and of the poor. That he was uh, serving uh, on the front lines, the very poorest among us, with tremendous compassion. And I and I bring up, and this might be a good Star Trek episode, the idea of like, what if we developed a compassion machine? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it looked like an MRI or a brain scan or whatever it is, but it allowed us to live in the shoes and behind the eyeballs of someone incredibly different than us, mm -hmm. a different race, a different class, a different gender, a different size and shape, certainly a different culture, and to just live in their shoes and experience the life of, um, you know, a, a Pakistani fisherman or a Mongolian herds person or uh, someone trapped in the war in Ukraine, whomever it is, that if we were able to exercise a machine like this, we could develop our brains to have a, an incredible compassion for the other. And that's an aspect that Star Trek has as they, as they seek out new life and new civilizations. They're also trying to understand it, like you say, discover it, and to empathize with that species, connect and see the similarities, not the differences. Star Trek isn't going out in the universe going like, we're superior, screw all them, they're different and weird, Ugh, we don't want anything to do with them. 
there's a humble posture of learning as they go about their mission. Quick break. We're back with Rain Wilson right after this. And we're back and still in conversation with Rain Wilson. You write about in the book, Spiritual Revolution, Mending Our Society. Tell us about sort of that kind of real world, not just sci-fi notion here, of spiritual revolution as empathy technology. Oh, great question. Spot on. I love it. So the empathy technology is just one idea that I throw. And again, I say in the beginning of the book, I'm throwing a bunch of spiritual spaghetti at the wall, and we'll see what sticks. And some things may resonate with people and some things may not. But the thing I'm most passionate about in the book and the thesis that I ultimately build to is that we need a spiritual revolution. We are in a time right now where all of our systems are starting to fall apart. And the reason I believe that they are falling apart is that they're based on the worst principles of humanity. Every system that we've created, healthcare, environment, agriculture, certainly the political system and the partisan political system is based on uh, competition, contest, one-upsmanship, backstabbing, dog eat dog, every man for himself, you know, victory, to the spoils go the victor, this kind of mentality, and certainly greed and profit at every turn. As long as our systems are built on these modalities, they will be unsustainable and they will fall apart more and more because we need to create systems in a practical, pragmatic way, but with a spiritual inspiration based on mutuality, on concord, on compassion, on cooperation and community. This can be done, and it has to be done. The stakes have never been higher. As part of that, you also talk about celebrating joy, right? So I hear you, as you say, to, to move towards that best part of ourselves rather than that cynical lowest common denominator. Talk to me about celebrating joy. I see joy as a superpower. I think that one of the tools I bring in, I have a chapter at the end called the seven pillars of a spiritual revolution. And one of them is to foster joy and squash cynicism. I think that cynicism holds us back. Pessimism is an easy fallback stance. Optimism is a difficult word because it doesn't really take into account the negative. It's kind of like, hey, I'm optimistic. That can be, sometimes when I meet optimistic people, I find them insufferable. But that was that was awfully unspiritual of me to admit, but it's kind of true. Um, I struggle. I got my struggle. But uh, joy is something that we can decide to bring into the world. So in my prayer and meditation practice, I strive for joy in the morning. How can I bring joy? My father, God rest his soul, one of the things I loved about him the most was he always made a room a more positive and joyful place, every room he went into. He never sucked the energy out of a room or brought people down. He was bringing something additive. And I strive to learn from his example as well. So joy is also the greatest service that we can do one to another. If we can inspire joy, happiness, upliftment, inspiration to people that we meet, that 
is a superpower and it is a, the greatest service. We then are fed by the service that we're doing to others and we're inspiring joy in them and they can spread joy to other people. And this isn't a kind of like hippy dippy, airy fairy, like kumbaya kind of thing. It's a practice. It's a practice of joyfulness that can be truly transformative. You dedicate the book to your father and you just mentioned him. Can you tell us more about him? Yeah, I can. Um, he passed away a couple years ago during COVID of heart disease. And um, when I was a child, uh, my mom left me and my dad. I was about a year and a half old. So it was kind of normally the dad takes off, you know, in broken families. Mine was a broken family where the mom took off and I stayed with the dad. So the dad was my dad through all of his many marriages and failings and issues and ups and downs of our relationship. He was kind of the steady, he was the constant in my life. And um, he was a great spiritual teacher to me as well as being a very flawed human being. And holding those contradictions in my head and in my heart has, is always a challenge. But his passing was revelatory to me. And it got me thinking much more deeply about death and thinking about death frames the meaning of life itself. And as I gazed upon his, uh, for lack of a better word, forgive me, corpse, after he had passed and we were preparing the body for for burial, I was so moved and struck by the fact that this in front of me was not my father. This was not my father. This was the vessel that carried my father, but not in fact my father. And that was a very powerful revelation. And uh, it made me kind of double down on kind of this belief that we are spiritual beings, that we're having a corporal human experience for 80 or 90 or 100 years if we're lucky. But our spirit nature, our true reality is spiritual, and it will continue its journey. Can you tell us about the new Peacock series, The Geography of Bliss? Well, speaking of joy... <laughs> um, I got the greatest job in the I never thought I'd have a better job than the office. I mean, I never <laughs> in a million years thought that I'd get a better job than the office. All of a sudden I did. 10 years after the office, I uh, got approached to do this uh, incredible show where I traveled the world, but instead of sampling delicious foods, um, which I did a little bit on the side, instead of doing that, I got to talk to people about happiness. I'm searching for joy. I'm searching for bliss and well-being around the world. What can we learn from other cultures? We Americans think we know everything. We think we've got the best way. We think we've got the best system. Well, guess what? There's a lot to learn in Thailand and in Ghana, West Africa, and in Iceland uh, about how to live up a happier, more fulfilled life. How do you make sure when you're doing that that you're not just culturally appropriating? Well, cultural appropriation would be taking on some cultural artifact kind of uh, superficially as kind of almost a some kind of fashion statement. Humility is learning from other cultures, and that's not appropriation. That is the greatest honor to that culture when we can 
learn from the people of Ghana, from the people of Thailand about what they have to teach us about living a balanced life. I love that language of humility. As we close, I love that you brought us to the idea that the office was a great job because clearly I think for many of us, um, part of what was the joy of watching it is thinking about how it helped us to see and have some humor in all the bad parts of jobs, right? All of the Mm -hmm. difficult and challenging parts. If there is a kind of last takeaway that you can leave us with, how do we find happy geographies, geographies of bliss, even if we can't be on the road, if we can't be traveling? How do we find it in our offices or our houses or our difficult places? That's such a great question and an important one. It's easy to find happiness and bliss when you're washing an elephant in Thailand or (laughs) dipping in a glacier water in Iceland. It's harder when you got to work nine to five or you got two jobs or you got three kids at home and you know, you got bills to pay. That's more difficult. But one of the things I talk about in my book to kind of bring it all around and kind of connecting the dots between the office, the geography of bliss and soul boom is one thing we can do is find sacred spaces. And in the in a weird way, the office, the the bullpen main part of the office is a sacred space. It's a it's a set for a television show, but one that people spend millions and millions and millions of hours watching their beloved quirky characters, their weird looking characters uh, struggling and and laughing and crying and being human beings. And that makes it a sacred space. Sacred spaces are something that we can bring into our own home and into our lives. It can be a place where you light a candle. It can be a bench where you meditate. It can be a beautiful plant or a little garden that you've cultivated. It can be not even a place, but an event, you know, a pancake breakfast with your family. So we've lost a sense of the sacred of the holy and contemporary life. And I think in small ways, that's something that we can strive to do and and to bring into the everyday. Rain Wilson, author of Soul Boom. Thank you so much for spending time with us on The Takeaway. Uh, It was my pleasure. It was so nice having a conversation with you. Thank you for having me.